and follow along with me now as I read. John 9, verse 1. As he, that is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the work of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and he made clay of the spittle and applied it to his eyes. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed and came back, seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, it is I, I am he. And so they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go wash in Siloam. And, and I did. I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. And they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who was formerly blind. And now it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. And then the Jews did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until, until they called his parents, the one who had received his sight, and questioned them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he'd be put out of the synagogue. And for this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And so a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. And so they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples, do you? And they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. And the man answered and said to them, well, this is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. And since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. 
If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you are born entirely in sin, and you are teaching us. So they put him out. And Jesus heard that he had been put out. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him. And he is the one speaking to you now. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. I am very tempted just to close the service here. And let's just do the Lord's Supper. What more can be added? This is a glorious story. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated challenge for me this morning is that this passage is 41 verses. I read 39 of them. And, uh, but this is Lord's Table Sunday, and I only have about 25, 30 minutes to unpack this. And that's not going to happen, right? Thankfully, however, um, there are several different thematic threads that tie this narrative together. And so in the interest of time, rather than trying to pull them all and tying, tying them together, uh, I'm just going to pull one. I'm just going to show you one. And next week we'll come back and we'll develop this. I'll have the full time. Um, but to give you some context here, in these verses, Jesus is, uh, you've got to hear this. You've got you to pay attention now or you'll miss it later. Jesus right now is driving a wedge into the hearts and between the people of Jerusalem between those who believe and those who will disbelieve. He's, he's driving a wedge between faith and unbelief. He's forcing the issue. When you think of Jesus healing the blind man, this, at first blush, this is not the dynamic we pick up on. I mean, we, th- we see Jesus coming. He initiates this thing. He sees the man. He's suffering. He's a blind man. I mean, we're all about, the evangelical church right now is all about compassion and mercy ministry and community service and soup lines. And, and we love this story because it, it shows Jesus doing that. And we can emphasize that and totally miss the point of all of that. Yes, Jesus is healing this man. Yes, he's having mercy on him and compassion. And he is even saving him, as I'll argue as we go along. But there's something bigger going on. There's something bigger going on. He is driving a wedge between belief and unbelief. And he's demanding, he's demanding that the people who are there and the people who are here today make a decision. Trust me or distrust me. Believe me or reject me. But I will not accept passivity on this question. Who am I? Who am I? He is forcing the issue. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's intentionally creating a circumstance in which people will have to make a decision about whether they believe him or whether they don't believe him. And the question is, is he a liar? To borrow C.S. Lewis's terms, is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? We know this is what Jesus' purpose is here because of a few statements that he makes. Verse 39 And then two similar statements made in verses 14 and 16, similar to one another. 
verse 39, look at that, and I didn't read it, but here it is. Verse 39, which is really, I think, the interpretive key to what this text is, is getting after, what Jesus is trying to do. And here, this is totally unexpected. If you're thinking this is all about gentle Jesus, meek and mild, being compassionate and gracious, showing us how to do community ministry, this text will just blow our circuits because it doesn't fit. We don't, that doesn't fit our paradigm. But here's what he says, verse 39. For judgment I came into the world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. I mean, that statement is so packed. It is so pregnant with meaning and controversy and, and um, truth. But suffice it to simply say that Jesus' point here is this, very simple. I came to divide. I came to divide between faith and unbelief. The ultimate destiny of every man comes to this what will you do with this Jesus? What will you do with him? Ignoring him is not an option. He will not accept that. You will either accept him or you will reject him. There is no middle ground. And we'll see next week why that's the case, but I'll just give you a taste of it here because that's not the only text that reveals this to us. There's also these two other verses, verses 14 and 16. In verse 14, look at that with me. Here's what we read. Now, it was a Sabbath on the day that Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And again, in verse 16, the Pharisees say, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And, and let me just tell you, I want to submit to you that it was no accident that Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. He was trying to create controversy. He was trying, listen, he was trying to, to so inflame the apathy that was around him, that everybody would have to talk about him. Everybody would have to, to ponder, who is this man? And so he breaks their Sabbath law. Sabbath law being the highest law among the Pharisees, and it wasn't, it wasn't God's standards that, God, that uh, Jesus was breaking. It was the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin's artificial rules that they'd put in place. And we don't have time to talk about that this morning. Um, but when you, here's a question you need to ask. Why does John make this statement about Jesus spitting on the ground and making clay? And the word clay there is the exact same word for dough. And he goes out of his way to say that. It has something to do with Sabbath, and we don't have time to look at that, so maybe you can look at it this week. And we'll talk about it next. But I'm telling you, Jesus did this on purpose. He wanted there to be an argument. He wanted them to be wrestling with who he is. Now, what I want us to focus on this morning, however, is how the main character of this narrative, the blind man, transitioned from being a, a complacent beggar, sitting on the road, blind, doing nothing but asking for alms. How was he transformed from that into becoming a joyful worshiper of Jesus Christ. Just a note here. I want you to observe, first of all, that Jesus initiates this relationship. Jesus initiates this relationship. 
And we can really look at this whole um, uh, narrative of the blind man receiving his sight as a metaphor for salvation. And this is where it starts. Jesus initiates the relationship. Chapter 9, verse 6. The very first interaction between the man and Jesus is when Jesus spits on the ground and he makes a kind of gooey mud or clay and, and he rubs it into the man's eyes. Now get the picture here. Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they just happen upon this man who's born blind and they get into a theological discussion about what was the cause of his blindness and Jesus stops and, and they're having this conversation, as I said last week, not very compassionate to do right in front of this guy, but they're having this theological conversation about the cause of his blindness. And uh, there's no introductions here. Hi, my name is Jesus. What's your name? How long have you been sitting here? Is this blindness congenital or did it develop? I mean, did you get sick? None of that. They're having this, this discussion. As far as we know, they haven't engaged him at all. He's just sitting there, you know, blind, listening to what they're saying. And suddenly Jesus spits on the ground. He makes a little mud and he starts rubbing it into this man's eyes. And the first interaction between Jesus and the man was not initiated by the man. It was initiated by Jesus. And there was no mistake that he was engaging with this man. He starts rubbing spit mud into his eyes. Now, I'm sorry, that's just a little, it's a little gross, but we're going to see next week why that's important. And he rubs this into his eyes. And the first thing he says was not, hi, I'm Jesus, you know, can I help you? Do you... Do you want me to heal you? What do you want? Etc. None of that. He puts the mud on his eyes and he simply says, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. That's it. First words addressed to the man. Um, now I realize you may have questions about the other stuff here. Um, what is the Sabbath? How does that fit in? What is spitting on the ground? What is mud? What is wash in the pool of Siloam? Why Siloam? Why does John go out of his way to call it scent? And those are all good questions, but what I want you to see here really is just the reality that Jesus initiated with this man. And that's important because every time a person is saved, it is not because the sinner went looking for Christ. It's because Christ went looking for him. The only reason I know Jesus Christ is because that week in Word of Life Bible Institute, my first weekend there, Jesus came looking for me. I was not looking for him. And we see this throughout Scripture. God is always the initiator. God is always the giver. He told the disciples in Luke 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear much fruit. I am the initiator. John 4, 1 John 4, 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. He is always the initiator. He's never the responder. You see, beloved, grace is not about a passive reluctant God responding to the sinner's cry for salvation. That is not how it works. It's not how the Bible presents it. You can't argue that from the text. Rather, grace is God's initiating a relationship with sinners by the sheer impulse of his infinite love. 
Nothing outside of himself made God want to save us. Nobody persuaded him. Nobody prodded him to do it. There were no external circumstances that made God do this. Here's another way of saying it. I read this week. I think this is fabulous. Grace. Are you listening? Here's grace. Grace is unmerited favor from an unobligated God. It is unmerited favor from an unobligated God. It is good news for the sinner, the beggar at the door of God's mercy. Does it offend you to hear me talk about the gospel in terms of you being a beggar? You say, I'm not a beggar. God created me. I'm somebody. He loves me. Yes, he does love you. But you are not anybody apart from him. You are a beggar. You remember the first thing Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the first of the Beatitudes, or one of the first? He said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what that means? Blessed are those who see themselves as spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who look at their lives and they say, God, the only thing I have to offer you is my sin. The question is not, will I accept you? The question is, will you accept me? On what basis would you ever accept me? My only hope is you, and yet I have no hope if you don't receive me. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. I am that beggar, sitting beside the road with my little cup, blind as a stone. And Jesus comes seeking me. Does that offend you? It shouldn't. That's the only way anybody comes to God. It is always by his grace. It is always by his mercy. It's always by his love. Now let's watch what happens. The man is instantly healed from his blindness But he doesn't know who healed him. He doesn't know who Jesus is. I mean, how in the world is he going to become a joyful worshiper of Christ if he can't even recognize him when he sees him? And he hasn't seen hardly anybody yet. What chance is there that this infant faith is going to grow and mature? We haven't even seen him make a statement of faith yet. And Jesus hasn't given him time. This wasn't about, do you believe? This is about, let me display the glory of God in you. A little mud on the eyes, go wash, and we'll talk later. Now, if we had been there after the healing, we may have immediately grabbed this man by the hand and said, hey, we've got to hook you up into a discipleship relationship. You know, let's maybe set you up with Peter. Maybe not Peter. Peter's a little brash. Maybe John. You're off slow. <laughs> you and John start meeting once a week, have coffee, you know, work through this material. You know what? That's great. In our context, discipleship like that, perfect. But notice what God does here. He didn't put um, this man in any kind of relationship like that. You know what he does? He throws him into the crucible of controversy. How's that for a hothouse for spiritual growth? I mean, the very first thing. Let's watch what his faith does. First of all, you know, the question is, who is Jesus? And remember here, let me just give you a paradigm, one of John's paradigms from John chapter 4. John tells us, or Jesus said to the woman at the well, that the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. 
And, and we take other scriptures and we understand God is making worshipers. He's taking out the heart of stone, replacing it with the heart of flesh, which he initiates again and again. We see it. And so God is in the business of transforming dead, blind sinners into joyful, seeing, singing worshipers. How is this man going to get from beggar to worshiper? The first thing that happens is Jesus gives him eyes to see. And notice, notice here, the question is, who is Jesus? And here's how the man responds first. I don't know who he is. He's just some guy. Look at verse 11, um, John 9, 11. And, um, and the people were arguing, you know, is this the man who was born blind or isn't he? And he kept saying, I am he. In verse 11, he answered and said, uh, or they asked him uh, in verse 10, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay, etc." Who is he? Oh, pff, I have no idea. Just, just this man. They, they called him Jesus, picked up on that, and he rubbed, he rubbed uh, clay in my eyes. I don't know anything about him. He's a man. And so the blind man doesn't know anything about Jesus' birth. He doesn't know anything about the Old Testament prophecies that he would fulfill. He doesn't know about him being born in Bethlehem and the significance of that. He apparently doesn't know about any of the miracles Jesus had done or any of his teaching. All he knows is that Jesus is a man. A good man to be sure, but a man nonetheless. I mean, what else is he? A man that to this point he hasn't even seen. But then in the crucible of controversy, his faith begins to grow. Look at verse 16 and 17. Um, Therefore, the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God, speaking of Jesus, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division. And there's the explicit mention of the wedge. The division. And there was a division among them. And um, so, verse 17, they said to the blind man, Who do you say, or what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, Hmm, you know, I, I see what you're asking. He's got to be thinking. Well, he's a man. But this is, this is a significant issue. I mean, he did do something crazy. I mean, he gave me my eyes. He's a prophet. It's what he is. You see the step he just took? First, he's a man. No, 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 no. It's got to be more than that. I'll tell you what he is. He's a prophet. Just a guess. But his faith is growing. He's a prophet. Now, now at this point, um, you know, you've got to love this guy. He's a thinker. He was congenitally blind, but as I said last week, it's probably his only, his only problem. He was well-spoken, and he was a thinker. Um, and so he's putting things together, and he's beginning to realize Jesus is more than just a man. And then there's another step. Verse, um, look at verse 24. 24 and 25. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And then he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. 
What's the man doing? He is he's putting his life on the line. He's putting his reputation on the line. He is defending Jesus at great personal risk to himself. And we begin to see this, this, uh, this beggar is no dummy. He's, he's got a sharp ma- mind. He's, he's discerning. He's, he's not simply going to cave in and on the baseless criticism that the Pharisees are coming up with. Rather, he's, he's, um, he's going to take them on. Beloved, do you realize the significance of his statement? Once I was blind, but now I see. To this point, that was his whole testimony. I don't know anything. I don't know where he came from. I don't know anything he's ever said. I don't know what he's done. I don't know who he is. This is what I know. He changed everything. I was blind. Now I see. Just as an aside, do you realize how powerful your personal testimony is in ministering to unbelievers? I mean, knowing theology, it's important. You need to study the book. You need to get yourself under good, sound teaching. And you need to be involved in more than just coming to worship services. Lots of opportunities here to learn about the gospel, to learn about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And you know what? I'm on a lifetime quest to do that. I want to know him more. I want to love him more. And we ought to be doing that. But you know what? Your story is powerful. When people hear how God has changed your life, you say, well, it's the gospel that's the power unto salvation. Yes, it is. And yet when Paul met with Gentile after Gentile, king after king, you know what he did? He shared his testimony. And then he explained the significance of the theology. Your testimony is powerful. And while you may need to learn some theology, even if you know very little, and yet God has changed your life, you can tell people. That's what it means to be a witness, right? You're driving down the road, you see an accident, you pull over, you talk to the police, the police said, what'd you see, what'd you hear? You're a witness. And you bump into somebody at work, and you get in talking about spiritual things, and they say, what did you see, what did you hear? Let me just tell you what happened to me. Once I was blind, now I see. Here's my story. And this is what I know about Jesus. And you can know him too. Don't undervalue that. That is so powerful. So powerful. Do you see this man's faith growing? Now he's not only convinced that Jesus is at least the equivalent of an Old Testament prophet. He's willing to to take on great personal risk. Look at verses 29 and 30. And the man answered and said again, um, verse, uh, what did I say, 29 and 30. We know that God has spoken Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. And the man answered and said to them, well, this is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he has opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing, and does his will, he hears him. And since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were, watch the next words, were not of God. You see his faith moving? He's a man. He's a prophet. He's from God. 
I'm getting this. He's from God. If he were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and you were teaching us. And so they put him out. They put him out. He knew what the risks were. Back in verse 22, we find out that, uh, you know, John already tells us that when they met with his parents, they threatened, we're going to put you out of the synagogue. Listen, being put out of the synagogue is di- being different than, you know, being excommunicated from a local church. The Jewish community was so tightly knit, if you were put out of the synagogue, you were out of the community. You were anathema. You had the scarlet letter, so to speak. You didn't fellowship. You didn't go to the weddings. You didn't go to the funerals. I mean, you were like a leper. And the man knew that this was a risk. His parents faced it, and his parents caved. But don't be too hard on the parents. God was giving him grace to be bold, even with his life. And God will give you grace differently. We need to grow. Some people grow faster. Some people grow slower. And sure enough, verse 44 tells us exactly what happened. This did not turn out well for him. Because while they only threatened his parents, they kicked him out. He was put out. But now watch what happens. Verse 35. Jesus, the consummate giver, By the way, grace, charis, means gift. Gift and grace are synonymous terms. Here's the consummate giver, the consummate initiator. And watch what happens, verse 35. Jesus heard that they put him out. And finding him, now stop there, finding him. You know what the implication of that is? He started looking for him. Busy, crowd-filled Jerusalem. He starts seeking him. He starts seeking him like a shepherd looking for his lost sheep, right? Listen, it is no mistake that John, in chapter 10, the next chapter, chapter 10 is all about the good shepherd caring for his sheep, rescuing his sheep, Keeping his sheep, feeding, leading, protecting, laying down his life for his sheep. Here's one of his sheep. I gotta find him. Gotta find him. And God had, so far, the blind man has not made any profession of faith whatsoever, but it has been growing. He hasn't even seen Jesus. And so Jesus goes looking for him. And when he finds him, verse 35, he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? In verse 36, the man answers, Who is he, Lord, (laughs) that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him. Ponder that. I don't know how old this man was. Maybe 30. He was an older guy. I mean, that was the point of this was everybody knew him. He'd been there so long. I mean, he hadn't seen anything in his life until just a few minutes ago. And now Jesus is saying, You've already seen the Son of Man. You've seen him with your eyes from the moment you wash in the, in, the, in, the, in the pool, somewhere between when you wash and right now this minute. You've already seen the Son of Man, and he is the one who is speaking to you, which is just a sweet, poetic way to say, I am he. Now, the consummation 
of the man's faith. Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. You know what that means in Greek? Uh, the word worship means fall down on your face before and give homage. He fell on his face before him. Believe? Yes, I believe. I worship you. That's God's work. Taking beggars who are blind like me and transforming us into joyful worshipers who can see and rejoice in the glory of God. And it's all by grace. Beloved, this is what God is doing in the world. As I said, John 4, 23, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. What makes a person a Christian is this. We worship God in Christ. Now, I don't know where you are in your relationship with God right now, but I do know this. God will not allow us to remain indifferent about who Jesus is. God will not allow us to remain indifferent. You must choose. You cannot sit on the fence. He will not allow it. And one day you will stand before him and you must give an account for what you believe about this man, the God-man. Will you reject him or will you receive him? Everybody knows the story of John Newton. Maybe not everyone. John Newton was a man back in the 1700s. Actually, he was the first a boy during the time when the British Navy was always looking for new recruits to bring onto their ships um, for battle, for war. They needed, they needed free help. And so they would get on land at, at, a, at any old dock. They'd dock their ship and they would get out and they would go to the local bar and they would form what they called a press gang. It would be a, a gang of sailors, a group of sailors who would go find a young man or a, young, a boy and essentially kidnap them. And they called it pressing them into service. It's just a euphemism for we stole you away from your family and we're not giving you back. And they would bring him on board the ship. Well, they did that. They found John Newton. They weren't looking for him, but he looked like a strapping young man. And they grabbed him and they put him on board ship. And he rebelled against that. Can you imagine being kidnapped? And they put him on the ship. And he's, he's now sailing on a, on a British vessel. And he was a tyrant. Uh, they hated him, and he hated them. He didn't want to be there. He wreaked havoc everywhere he went. He did everything he could that they would throw him overboard or put him back on land or have them pay a ransom to his parents or something. But he kicked and screamed, and, and, and uh, they ended up putting him on another boat and, and then on an island. And this is during the days of the slave trade. He got put on an island and actually became a slave. Amazing story. And then he escapes, and he gets on a ship, it's a, it's a slave ship. He gets to know the captain. He, he begins learning the ropes, literally. That's where the term comes from. And, and he becomes a captain of his own ship, um, trading in black slaves from Africa. And years into it, he's becoming a wealthy man now. And he hates God and he hates everything. And one day after a storm, 
He retrieves the Bible his mother gave him. He remembers the gospel and he repents. And later in his life, he writes this song called Amazing Grace and he based it on this text. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. You hear wretch? Hear blind beggar. A wretch, slave trader, rebel like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Oh, Father, the Lord's table reveals to us how that happened. It wasn't because of what we did. It's because of what you did in Christ when you gave him as a ransom to rescue us. So we praise you for the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Help us now, Father, as we consider the truth that Joe will present to us relative to your death and our salvation. May we be so moved to worship you, to repent of any known sin, to rejoice in the communion that we have with one another because Christ. I know, Father, I pray that perhaps someone here today would come to know him and find themselves inexplicably loving him and find themselves to be a joyful worshiper of Jesus Christ by grace, through faith, because of Christ alone. For we pray it in Jesus' name.